Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin as this year ends with selected programs from our archives. Following yesterday's coverage of events from the middle of the year, today we'll cover stories from later in the year before special programming on New Year's Eve and New Year's Day. We'll begin with a broadcast of background briefing from July the 23rd of 2023, How to Save American Democracy from the Trump 2.0 Revenge Machine. We began with the unavoidable observation that Donald Trump appears to have the Republican presidential nomination wrapped up and that a growing number of indictments and criminal trials he will be facing only seems to strengthen the MAGA movement and boost his chances to be elected the next president of the United States. Joining us to discuss the best chance of beating Trump by forming a coalition of Democrats and traditional Republicans was Miles Taylor, a national security expert who works in Washington, D.C. He served as chief of staff to Kirsten Nielsen, the former secretary of the Department of Homeland Security in the Trump administration, where he published an anonymous essay in the New York Times, blowing the whistle on presidential misconduct. He later published the number one bestseller, A Warning, revealed himself to be the author and launched a campaign of ex-officials, the Renew America movement, to oppose Donald Trump's re-election. And his new book is Blowback, a warning to save a democracy from the next Trump. Then we'll go to a broadcast of background briefing from September the 19th of 2023, how the U.S. Constitution's protection against tyranny of the majority has enabled the opposite. We began with how the United States Constitution, which was designed in part to protect against the tyranny of the majority, has generated the opposite problem by enabling a tyranny of the minority, with the U.S. today more vulnerable to minority rule or even anti-democratic rule than any other established democracy. We were joined by two scholars with the most insight into the health of democracy at home and abroad, Stephen Levitsky and Daniel Zyblatt professors of government at Harvard University, and the authors of the New York Times bestseller, How Democracies Die, which won the Goldsmith Book Prize and was named one of the best books of the year by the Washington Post, Time, and Foreign Affairs. Stephen Levitsky's research focuses on Latin America and the developing world, and he's the author of Competitive Authoritarianism, and Daniel Zyblatt studies Europe from the 19th century to the present, and is the author of Conservative Parties and the Birth of Democracy. We discussed their latest book just out, Tyranny of the Minority, Why American Democracy Reached the Breaking Point. Then finally, we'll play a broadcast of background briefing from October the 29th, 2023, after the the 565th mass shooting this year, a look at red and yellow flag laws. Following the 565th mass shooting this year, We examined the glaring inadequacy of the red and yellow flag laws meant to confiscate firearms from mentally ill people who pose a danger to themselves and others. We spoke with Jonathan Metzl, Professor of Sociology and Psychiatry at Vanderbilt University and Director of the Center for Medicine, Health and Society. A prominent expert on gun violence and mental illness, he's the author of several books including Dying of Whiteness, How the Politics of Racial Resentment is Killing America's Heartland, and his forthcoming book is What We've Become, Living and Dying in a Country of Arms. And before we begin, as the year rapidly comes to a close, many are looking for tax deductions, so I hope you'll consider making a tax-deductible donation at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate 
or at our foundation, publictruthmedia.org, so that we can continue to seek out facts and information to awaken America's silent majority before democracy is trumped by fascism. And joining us now is Miles Taylor, a national security expert who works in Washington, D.C. He served as chief of staff for Kirsten Nielsen, the former secretary of the Department of Homeland Security under the Trump administration, where he published an anonymous essay in The New York Times blowing the whistle on presidential misconduct. He later published the number one national bestseller, A Warning, revealed himself to be the author and launched a campaign of ex-officials to oppose Donald Trump's re-election. He's worked as an advisor in the George W. Bush administration on Capitol Hill and as a CNN contributor and is the co-founder of the D.C.-based charter school and multiple democracy reform groups. And his forthcoming book out in July is Blowback, A Warning to Save Democracy from the Next Trump. Welcome to Background Briefing, Miles Taylor. Ian, great to be with you as always, my friend. Well, thanks for joining us, Miles, but the next Trump is Trump. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, unfortunately, I think that's really shaping up to be the case. You know, the past two years, I think folks have been in a state of denial about Donald Trump's prospects for regaining the presidency. You know, you look at all of the legal cases against him. You look at the political opposition, even on his own side, trying to line up to take his place as the standard bearer of the party. But then you see days ago in an ABC News Washington Post poll that Donald Trump really is the odds on favorite to win the Republican uh, primaries and be the Republican presidential nominee. And at this point, depending on the poll you look at, he's beating Joe Biden by several percentage points. I mean, not just to Democrats, but to Republicans, a lot of Republicans, this has privately been seen as a nightmare. And the nightmare is coming to life in real time. Now, let me caveat that by saying, A lot could happen in these primaries, but the fact that a twice impeached, unconstrained former commander in chief like Donald Trump is leading at this point in the polls for 2024 should be cause for alarm. And the polls on the Democratic side give Robert Kennedy Jr. something like 19 percent, which it would indicate that there's a disquiet on the Democratic side about Joe Biden. There absolutely is. And it's and it's even beyond the Democratic side. I think the real struggle for President Biden right now is with independence. Now, another survey showed recently that two thirds of Americans don't think that Joe Biden has the mental or physical stamina for a second term. Now, that's not me saying that. That's the majority of Americans. So if he's hoping that he can cobble together the Democratic coalition and enough independence to win again, uh, you know, messages like that are a big, big red flag for Democrats. Now, I will tell you, I spend a lot of time talking to these people, including prospective nominees for the presidency on the Democratic side, people who would run if Joe Biden wasn't running. And I wouldn't even describe it as concern. I would describe it as panic. And it's odd because publicly these same folks have to go out there and say, I stand behind Joe Biden and, you know, I want to support him for reelection. And privately, they're very, very concerned about his ability to go up against a Donald Trump or any other Republican in 2024. Uh, It's shaping up to be more of a train wreck than we saw in 2016 or 2020. So candidates like Gretchen Whitmer, the governor of Michigan, 
Others that I particularly like, like Chris Murphy, Senator from Connecticut, is very strong on foreign policy. They just have to sit it out, right, and wait in the wings. And they're the ones that, I don't know whether specifically you've talked to them, but they're the ones that are feeling kind of panicked. Well, there's uh, even beyond those folks. And, you know, there's a few options here. One is, you know, folks have privately signaled to the White House that they think it would be smart for President Biden to leave an opening for someone else to step in. Uh, But there's also people who have quietly considered challenging Biden. And I would say that's only a handful at this point. But I'm aware of at least one or two Democrats who are still considering entering the primary against Biden, who I think would actually be more formidable uh, than RFK Jr. Now, whether they do it or not is a big question. Often when these folks look at the polls about challenging an incumbent, they decide not to do it. But it's it's pretty significant worry at this point about whether they have a competitive candidate to beat a Donald Trump or another MAGA Republican. Well, but challenging an incumbent Democratic president could be a nail in the coffin because look what happened when Senator Teddy Kennedy challenged the incumbent president, Jimmy Carter, who subsequently lost to Reagan. Well, exactly. And I'll give you an example. And I talk about this a little bit in my book, Blowback, that comes out in July. But when Donald Trump was running for reelection in 2020, he was certainly seen by a lot of Republicans as one of the most damaged figures in the history of American politics. And you would have expected that given how damaged Donald Trump was at that point with one impeachment under his belt, that he would have been challenged by a number of Republicans. Of course, he wasn't. And and during that time period, I consulted with a number of elected Republicans who were thinking about entering the primaries against the incumbent president, people who really loathed Donald Trump, wanted to see him taken down. But ultimately, those folks stepped back from a combination of polls that showed them it was going to be very difficult to go against an incumbent of their own party, but also fear, fear that they would be widely scorned and attacked by their own tribe. And I think the same thing is holding back a number of Democrats who might consider primary Joe Biden is they don't want to be scorned from the tribe uh, and on the receiving end of the ire of the establishment. But that said, uh, there still is a five-alarm fire here in the polls for Joe Biden. Um, and and I think the White House should be thinking creatively, if Biden is absolutely going to do it, about how to make the ticket more compelling. And I've heard folks talk about potentially replacing Kamala Harris in the number two slot. I think all options should be on the table if they want to win this election. So let's uh, talk a little about blowback, a warning to save democracy from the next Trump, just in the context of what we just saw this week uh, with uh, CNN town hall with Donald Trump, which alarmed a lot of people. I mean, CNN, of course, has gotten a lot of criticism as a result of it. But in many ways, maybe it's better to at least have the guy expose himself as to who he is as opposed to have him completely only sealed up in a, in a friendly bubble of Fox and, and Newsmax and other outlets that give him softball questions. So... What was your reaction to it, Miles? Well, I think any time you take a controversial figure like a Donald Trump and give them a national platform, two things are possible. One, it could lend credence to their views. But two, it also gives you an opportunity to challenge those views and hold that person to account. Now, 
you know, I'll withhold judgment on whether CNN was successful in doing that in the town hall. But in general, I don't think you should shy away from being able to put controversial figures on the stage as long as you're able to give them the grilling that they deserve. And in Trump's case, there's a lot that needs to be exposed if he is the front runner. It's, it's one of the reasons that I wrote this book is people don't need to take my word for it. I went and interviewed dozens and dozens of former Trump officials at the highest levels, Republicans in Congress, and asked a very simple question. What would a second term of Donald Trump look like? What does he have in mind in terms of policies he wants to implement in a second go round that he couldn't the first time? And if he succeeded by a savvier MAGA successor, what policies will they implement? And Ian, I thought I was prepared for those answers. I was incredibly shocked by what I heard from po folks. And, and the picture they painted is really a second term that results in the systematic dissolution of a range of Democratic guardrails. Now, these weren't speculative predictions from these folks. They were based on things that Donald Trump wanted to do in the first term, but held off doing because he wanted to win re-election. In a second term, it will be no holds barred. And it was, you know, I heard everything from shadowy presidential powers that would get invoked to ways to use the CIA against political enemies to assassination plots. I mean, it was scary stuff. And, you know, some of these are folks that are still in the MAGA orbit. So what I wanted to do was paint a very clear picture of what a second Trump term would look like so folks can make an informed judgment as they head into the 24 presidential cycle. But you were there, Miles, in the first term. And I don't know that we've got a full accounting of what happened, you know, from people like yourself and former Chief of Staff General Kelly, who saw him up close and personal and wanting to do the most outrageous things. I and mean, here we have the end of Title 42 on the southern border. Trump apparently asked General Kelly whether the Marines could be deployed on the border to shoot Mexicans in the legs. I mean, that's just one anecdote. I mean, do you think the full accounting has come out? We haven't heard from General Mattis and others. We know that they all thought he was nuts. At least Bill Barr is now speaking frankly about how unfit for office Trump is. Yeah, look, I think it's a little bit scattered, Ian. You've got some folks from the administration who've come out and given a partial accounting, but I would agree with you. I still don't think history has the full accounting of how bad it was and how bad it could have gotten during the Trump administration. Uh, and that's one of the pictures that I tried to paint and blow back is in addition to talking about what could happen in a second Trump term, I talk about things, untold stories from the first term that could give us a strong sense of what might happen next time, including talking about some of those examples that you witnessed. I mean, I sat in the Oval Office as Donald Trump fantasized about replicating North Korea's demilitarized zone on the U.S. southern border, replete with landmines, barbed wire, electric fences, armed guards. Uh, and he talked in graphic detail about the flesh-piercing spikes that he wanted installed on the border wall, designed specifically to maim climbers so bloodily that other migrants would be scared to follow suit. And as you noted, he also mused about U.S. soldiers firing on civilians because he knew that if they blew the legs out from underneath pregnant mothers, it would keep them from reaching the border. That's the level of very graphic 
and, and plainly illegal activity that Donald Trump wanted to undertake as president in the first term. He was dissuaded from doing that by the so-called axis of adults that worked under him. In a second term, he won't be. Well, a lot of critics have described what happened at the CNN town hall where he steamrolled Caitlin Collins of CNN, that they've described him as a bully. But you're almost describing him as being a sadist. Yeah, I, I, I genuinely think that um, he's one of the most dangerous people on the place of the planet. And Ian, I would have told you, let's say six or seven years ago, that that sounded very hyperbolic and you know would have to be an exaggeration. Uh, I've spent most of my career in national security, not in politics. But after being exposed to this guy for two years, that was my ultimate takeaway. Now, you know, I mentioned in the book, you know, one of the individuals that I worked with in the administration, uh, someone much more senior than me, said that he was Donald Trump was the most evil person he had ever met in his life. Now, this was an official who had spent time on the battlefield uh, in the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan and had encountered terrorists. Um, it's pretty significant to say that, uh, you know, General Mattis called him a threat to the fabric of our republic behind the scenes. Uh, to me, that was extraordinary talk coming from people who had seen throughout their careers all sorts of dangerous figures. And in this case, they're talking about their boss. They're talking about their boss, the president of the United States. I think it's galling to a lot of Americans that we would be in a position where that individual could again be the leader of the free world. But we are a coin toss away from Donald Trump holding that office. So I do think whether or not the CNN town hall was the right format, it really is imperative that we have a full, clear-headed conversation about who this person is that we would potentially uh, put back into the White House. So in the last few minutes then, Miles Taylor, let's talk about what can be done to stop Donald Trump. Because one thing that's clear is that he's almost like a kind of monster out of a Marvel comic or a Marvel movie. The more you try to disqualify him, the stronger he gets. So what can break that? Well, there's three things, Ian, that I would point to. The first I've alluded to, I really do think we have to open our eyes. There's something that I call the the victim mentality has overtaken voters since the Trump presidency. And Americans have lamented the brokenness of our politics as if the situation we are in was an unwelcome or faultless mishap. We've got to be candid with ourselves. This isn't happening to us. It's happening because of us. And a lot of the political division in our country starts at the grassroots in our city streets. So we need to be clear eyed about the political division in this country and come together uh, against political extremism. But secondly, to your question, we really have to proactively protect our institutions. If we are a coin flip away from someone like Donald Trump becoming president again, what can Congress, what can state legislatures do to make sure the guardrails of democracy are protected against him or another anti-democratic figure who might hold office? And in blowback, I talk a lot about those specific guardrails and reforms that could be put in place to protect our institutions. Uh, but third and finally, you know, we shouldn't hide from a deeper menace. And the deeper menace I actually think here is people not speaking up. And that's especially within the Republican tribe. I still know so many senior officials from the Trump administration and elected leaders at the highest levels of Congress and the Republican Party who privately 
express complete fear about a return of Trump, but publicly have still not come forward to express that. I think we desperately need those people to speak their minds uh, and to also give air cover to Republican voters who are looking for an excuse to withhold their support for him in a second go round. Well, Miles Taylor, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Ian, thanks for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Miles Taylor, who's a national security expert who works in Washington, D.C. He served as the chief of staff for Kirsten Nielsen, the former secretary of the Department of Homeland Security under the Trump administration, where he published an anonymous essay in The New York Times blowing the whistle on presidential misconduct. He later published the number one national bestseller, A Warning, revealed himself to be the author and launched a campaign of ex-officials to oppose Donald Trump's re-election. He's worked as an advisor in the George W. Bush administration on Capitol Hill as a CNN contributor and is the co-founder of a D.C.-based charter school and multiple democracy reform groups. And his forthcoming book out in July is Blowback, A Warning to Save Democracy from the Next Trump. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back with a broadcast of background briefing from September the 19th of 2023, how the U.S. Constitution's protection against the tyranny of the majority has enabled the opposite. And joining us now is Stephen Levitsky and Daniel Zyblatt, professors of government at Harvard University and the authors of the New York Times bestseller, How Democracies Die, which won the Goldsmith Book Prize and was named one of the best books of the year by the Washington Post, Time and Foreign Affairs. Stephen Levitsky's research focuses on Latin America and the developing world, and he's the author of Competitive Authoritarianism. And Daniel Zyblatt studies Europe from the 19th century to the present and is the author of Conservative Parties and the Birth of Democracy. Their latest book, Just Out, is Tyranny of the Minority, Why American Democracy Reached the Breaking Point. Welcome to Background Briefing, Stephen Levitsky and Daniel Zyblatt. Thanks. Good to be with you. Well, thanks for joining us. And just to touch on how democracies die, it seems like our democracy is on life support and after 242 years, it may only have another year and a half to live. So starting with you, Stephen, when you wrote the book, did you think we would be in this position so quickly? I would say that some things changed more quickly than I anticipated. I um, did not anticipate the thoroughgoing Trumpization of the Republican Party. Uh, and when you're in a situation like we are now, where one out of two major political parties is not fully committed to democratic rules of the game, um, that is inherently destabilizing. That's a that's a real threat to democracy. Um, that said, I'm I'm not quite so pessimistic about the the fate of uh, of U.S. democracy. The U.S. has a lot of things going for it, uh, including federalism, uh, pretty strong rule of law. A still very independent judiciary, uh, and maybe most important of all, a very strong opposition. So I think the the likelihood, even even sort of the worst case scenario, um, of the consolidate the likelihood of consolidating a sort of Putin style autocracy is 
still pretty remote. I think that instability and um, sort of sliding in and out of crisis is, is a more likely scenario than outright autocracy. Daniel, any thoughts? Yeah, I think I agree with that. I mean, I, I you know, it's maybe uh, one can cast that as being optimistic, which sort of shows you how far our standards of what's acceptable have deteriorated in a way, you know, because, and I mean, the idea that we, that the United States, which is a, you know, in the world compared to the rest of the world, pretty rich country, a pretty old democracy. Usually these kinds of democracies, the historical record uh, shows don't get into trouble. And yet we are. And so that should raise lots of questions to us. Why, given everything that's going for us, as Steve said, why are we in this incredible situation of instability that has the potential of destabilizing to such a degree that there's violence and and you know real real instability? So how, how did we end up here? That's that's actually really what motivated our book, in fact, is trying to answer that question. So let's turn to your new book, Tyranny of the Minority, Why American Democracy Reached the Breaking Point, which makes the point that the US Constitution, America's founding document, was designed in a pre-democratic era in part to protect against the tyranny of the majority, yet it has generated the opposite problem by enabling a tyranny of the minority. So starting with you, Stephen, that is the essence of the paradox, right, that afflicts us today. Yeah, I mean, if you go back to the 18th century, at this pre-democratic era that you mentioned, uh, the U.S. Constitution was a, was a remarkable and a remarkably progressive and democratic document compared to the rest of the, the world, particularly Europe. Uh, and for many decades after that, throughout most of the 19th century, the kinds of counter-majoritarian institutions that uh, that we talk about in the book and that we argue are creating problems in the United States today, they existed across Europe. Uh, the United States was in was was in no way unique. But the thing is, over the course of really over the the, the arc of history, the last 150 years or so, other democracies uh, and the United States too constantly worked to make their systems more democratic, whether it was expanding the franchise uh, or weakening or eliminating uh, upper chambers of legislatures uh, or uh, imposing term limits on Supreme Court justices or in Latin America, eliminating electoral colleges. Other democracies across the world gradually became more democratic. They eliminated or they weakened many of their pre-existing counter-majoritarian institutions. The U.S., did that some. We also extended the franchise. We uh, had a, an indirectly elected Senate that we replaced by by uh, elected senators. But um, but we did less of it. We remained stuck in a, in a pretty counter-majoritarian system. And then over the last half century, we stopped doing that work entirely. We stopped reforming uh, or even talking about reforming our Constitution. And that has gotten us into some trouble. Well, Daniel, it seems, though, in many ways, the more radical part of Trump's MAGA base, and there are fears that we are heading into a form of American fascism, their interpretation of liberty actually threatens life and the pursuit of happiness. Yes, well, you know, I think there, there have always been strands of authoritarianism in American political culture. Um, as in as in all democracies, you know, there's roughly about 30 percent of the electorate, say, in Germany that's supporting a radical right, far right party that's extremist and anti-democratic. 
um, you know, going back to in the 20th century as well, the, there was there's been authoritarian elements who wanted to, you know, support Jim Crow and restrict the right to vote uh, and not allow African-Americans the right to vote. You know, you can think of the McCarthy era, the John Birch Society, these elements that in the 1960s began to invent this, you know, this story that people often say were a republic, not a democracy in order to kind of beat back the kind of possibilities of democracy. So these strands have always been there. I think what what um, you know, and certainly we, you know, as a as a pro as a society, we should try to reduce anti-democratic elements within our society through education and other kind of long-term projects. But these strands are there, and I think the real issue, the the the, the problem in our current moment, is that these strands have taken over one of our major political parties, and so political leaders have failed in the effort to kind of sideline uh, these uh, factions and these groups. And rather than being spread out across two different political parties, as it was through much of the 20th century, where there was a very conservative wing of the Democratic Party, as well as the Republican Party, today they're primarily clustered in one party, and they represent a primary winning majority. That is, in order to win a primary, as we see in the presidential race today, they're all clustered in one party. They, they constitute such a significant part of that party um, and party leaders have caved to this. And so now we have one of our major parties embracing that. And so you're right. I mean, at that level, this is a major threat, but it's it's a threat not because it's merely present, but, but because it's uh, dominant within one of our parties. So it's no mystery, though, about the thrust of the book in the sense that the Republican Party has won the popular vote in only one presidential election since 1992 to 2020. That's almost three decades. And that's largely due to the Electoral College, and Republicans occupied the presidency for nearly half of that time between 92 and 2020. And essentially, the party with fewer votes have controlled the Senate. And then if you go to 2016, the Democrats won the national popular vote for the presidency, and they won the Senate with the popular vote. But Republicans nonetheless won control of both elections with Trump, having lost the popular vote and senators who represent a minority of Americans then proceeded to fill three Supreme Court seats, giving the Supreme Court now its uh, right-wing supermajority. So, Stephen, in combination with that, there also seems to be another factor, which is not necessarily what, you, what your book covers, but it many people, including Senator Whitehouse, see what also happened with Supreme Court as the plutocratic capture of the Supreme Court. So do you have two strands there, the anti-majoritarian strand and the plutocratic strand? Yeah, and they are, uh, they're sort of coexisting in, in the same political party. On the, um, and so what you just described doesn't sound very democratic, does it? It sounds, it sounds very much like minority rule. And, um, and if it continues, I worry deeply about particularly younger generations who grew up during this period that you described, Ian, uh, how much trust they're going to have in in our political system. And there are uh, surveys show that that Americans trust, particularly among young people, Americans' uh, faith in the system has has plummeted. I do think there is a, a relatively straightforward solution to this Supreme Court problem, um, which is term limits on uh, on um, Supreme Court justices. This is something that exists either retirement age or term limits exist in all other established democracies. Um, and if we establish, for example, 18 year term limits, we could set uh, uh, set up a system in which every president has two um, picks and it, the, the sort of politicization uh, and and um, the, and sort of crisis ridden nature of each 
Supreme Court appointment would, I think, be pretty seriously alleviated. So I think there are institutional solutions to at least some of these problems. And term limits, would that re require a constitutional amendment or could that be done? That, that's debated. That is debated. But um, there are apparently ways of setting it up that uh, were justices that wouldn't be forced to retire, they would rotate in and off in and off the bench. And so there are, um, I think, creative mechanisms. Obviously, this would need bipartisan support, but there are creative ways of reforming it without a constitutional reform. Well, Daniel, one of the amazing things I've learned about you in your book, Tyranny of the Minority, Why American Democracy Reached the Breaking Point, is that there have been about 700 attempts to get rid of the Electoral College. And as recently as September of 1969, the House of Representatives passed a proposal to abolish the Electoral College by 338 to 70. But then when it got to the Senate, it was essentially, you know, the, the South, the slave states that killed it. And uh, there were other attempts during the Carter administration. And again, the same thing happened. So is this a dead letter or, I mean, what about this work around the interstate compact? Is that a possible solution? Well, I, I think the first step is to become aware of that history. And that's, that's why we tell that story and other stories like it in our book, because we want people to understand that these things aren't as fixed as we think they are um, and that reform is not as impossible as it might seem. You know, so just to add one more you know, twist to that story you just told about 1970, not only did it pass the House with overwhelming majorities, it had a majority support in the Senate, didn't have the two thirds majority required, but it had the support of Richard Nixon the American Bar Association, the American Chamber of Commerce, the AFL-CIO, and in, according to opinion polls, 70% of Americans. So this is something that uh, was was popular and you know people accepted this broadly speaking and saw the virtues of it. And also it's something that every other democracy in the world that's had an electoral college has also done. They've got, they got rid of it. I mean, we're the only country left with this system. And so it is possible to reform it. I mean, there, there's different ways of thinking about reforming it. Um, and uh, of eliminating it. Um, and, you know, one is simply eliminating it outright. Another, uh, you know, there's other, another possibility is the kind of interstate compact. I mean, that this is something where the states themselves essentially agree, vote state legislatures agree to uh, essentially let the, whoever wins the popular vote to give their delegate to give their electors to whoever wins the national popular vote. Now the problem is that if not all states do this, of course, and if it's all blue states that do this, this is potentially a problem. And that's so far kind of mostly what it looks like. So, uh, you know, this is potentially a, a risky strategy, but we need to begin to think creatively about this and to understand that you know reform is within our own grasp, and the the kind of biggest barrier to reform. Uh, is not thinking is thinking that reforms impossible and that becomes a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy. So learning about this history, understanding the various proposals that are out there. You know, one one proposal that got a lot of attraction in this early period was to make it so that you didn't have winner take all states. So in other words, the electors were distributed based on the percentage of the votes they got in each state. You know, now, you know, at the current moment, one might think this benefits uh, this, you know, all of this, these kinds of proposals benefit Democrats. But one of our real points here is that, you know, we don't think it's uh, you know, a partisan issue to say that whoever wins the most votes sh uh, should win office. I mean, this is really a question of basic fairness that I think all Americans 
can understand. You know, in our daily lives, we know if you have a family decision to make, you have a vote. Whoever wins the most votes gets decided you're going to go have ice cream or go have go see a movie. So why in this one most important realm of our political life do we say, well, we don't use this basic norm of fairness. Whoever wins the most votes gains office. And so it, it's really, in some sense, very straightforward. And it's a matter of kind of realizing that reform is possible. Well, reform is possible in, in the counter-majoritarian form of a constitutional amendment, but that's such a high bar. What about a constitutional convention? Now, there's some efforts underway, in part financed by the Koch brothers and others, plutocratic interests, to get a constitutional convention, but essentially have that constituency writing a new constitution is a terrifying prospect. Yeah, which is why we support the amendment path. <laughs> yeah, there's two. I mean, there's two paths to carrying out constitutional amendments in the United States: one through conventions, and one through this other method, which is the method that's always been used, um, which is you know to have this passed through the House of Representatives, uh, the Senate, and then approved by three quarters of the states. And so this is this we think you know although this is incredibly cumbersome, you know there have been earlier eras in American history where that procedure has been used to give women the right to vote to uh, elect senators rather than appoint senators. I mean, our history is, is filled with not enough of these examples, but certainly enough to show that, you know, in principle, it is possible. Certainly, you know, I, you know, I don't want to, uh, you know, understate the difficulties and, and kind of institutional barriers to it, but this requires that Americans become engaged on these issues. We, we also think that that there's a lot of value to constitutional continuity. Our constitution is in many respects a brilliant document that uh, is um, it has been very, very effective in many ways and has a lot of legitimacy. And so uh, given that, I think it's much um, much more feasible, a much more legitimate process to work within the Constitution, the, the longstanding American tradition of reforming our Constitution to make it more democratic rather than essentially junking it. And we're continuing the conversation with Stephen Levitsky and Daniel Zyblack, Professor of Government at Harvard University and the authors of the New York Times bestseller, How Democracies Died. Stephen Levitsky's research focuses on Latin America and the developing world. He's the author of Competitive Authoritarianism. Daniel Zyblack studies Europe from the 19th century to the present. And he's the author of Conservative Parties and the Birth of Democracy. And their latest book just out is Tyranny of the Minority, Why American Democracy Reached the Breaking Point. Well, in terms of how the U.S. stands in relation to all democracies around the world, Freedom House has its Global Freedom Index. And in 2015, the United States received a score of 90, roughly in line with countries such as Canada, France, Germany, and Japan. But since then, America's score has declined steadily, reaching 83 in 2021. And as your book points out, the opposite is true. As our democracy is weakening, other democracies have been strengthened by dealing with the counter-majoritarian and somewhat antique upper houses. You know, Lloyd George in the UK neutralized the power of the House of Lords, etc. So that lesson seems to be lost on the United States. That is, if you get rid of these counter-majoritarian institutions, you strengthen democracy. So what explains our drift in the opposite direction, Stephen? It's a good question and something we've been thinking a lot about and trying to, to, to figure out. I think one factor 
is simply the difficulty of reforming the U.S. Constitution. The U.S. among democracies, the U.S. Constitution is um, far and away the most difficult to to reform. So that's one reason why we've gotten stuck. Uh, another reason in recent decades, I would say roughly the last four decades or so, the level of partisan polarization, the fact that um, the parties are now increasingly internally disciplined and polarized uh, makes very, very difficult. It makes much more difficult the the kind of cross-party alliances or, multi, or bipartisanship of any kind that's necessary for constitutional reform. Through most of our history, the parties were both kind of broad, heterogeneous, undisciplined political forces, and you could quite easily cross the aisle and build coalitions in favor of, of one reform or another. That's gotten much, much more difficult in the 21st century. But the, a third thing is, uh, which is a, you know, a little, little less concrete but important, is um, especially in the last few generations, Americans have, or some Americans, have come to view the Constitution as this sort of sacred, untouchable document. I think it's been reinforced by the rise of originalism within right-wing constitutional thought. It may have been reinforced by the rise in the last half century of evangelical Protestantism, which focuses on the uh, the original language of the Bible. But this notion that that what was written down in 1787 ought to be left untouched, um, that that's certainly not always been the case in, in U.S. history. As we said earlier, through most of U.S. history, uh, there's been a vigorous effort, a vigorous debate, public discussion about making our Constitution better, more democratic. Um, but that's that's sort of been lost. Um and I think that's very, very dangerous. This idea that the, the Constitution should not and cannot be touched is really dangerous for democracy. So, Daniel, earlier I mentioned the um, Freedom House score, if you will. Only three countries have received a perfect score of 100 in terms of health of democracy globally, and that's Finland, Sweden, and Norway. And you talk about Norway quite a lot in the history of, the, of how they broke away from Denmark and began to become one of the healthiest democracies and apparently, according to the UN, the happiest country on, on the planet. Mm. Interesting enough, Sweden, from my memory, just, you know, we talked earlier about how quickly things have gone south since you wrote the book, uh, How Democracies Die, and how we've maybe only got a year and a half before America turns to fascism. Sweden was a feudal country in the 1920s, and it became an incredibly egalitarian society. So there are examples of the opposite, are there not, of how things can get better quicker as opposed to get worse quicker, which is where we started out. Yes, I mean, with the, yeah, so we tell the story of Norway in our book partly because Norway has the, you know, the U.S. has the oldest written constitution in the world, except from 1787. Norway has the second oldest written constitution in the world. And the point of telling the story of Norway is because, you know, this this shows you that old constitutions can, in fact, change. I mean, we don't have to junk the constitution. We can reform it. And that's what Norway's done hundreds of times, has amended its own constitution hundreds of times, whereas we've only done it, you know, in the 20s. So, um, 
what so the story of Norway is interesting because as well as Sweden, as you say, because you know this was a country in, in the early 19th century when it was founded and gained its independent, you know, began to gain its independence, not fully till later, that had a king that had an upper chamber that represented really oligarchic interests. It was by no means a democratic country. I mean, the US was was by kind of common uh, current criteria much more democratic in the early 20th century and yet or early 19th century. Yet it, like Sweden, uh over the centuries, gradually chipped away at these institutions. You know, had an upper chamber. It overrepresented, uh, you know, rural conservative districts. And over time, uh, you know, over time, these institutions were were dismantled. Each time after they were dismantled, it generated demand for more reform. And that's one of the lessons of this history. So Sweden, even as late as the 20, late 20th century, still had an upper chamber. Once it eliminated its upper chamber, I mean, you know, we're not calling for the elimination of the U.S. Senate. We just think the U.S. Senate should be made slightly more proportional to population. But Sweden got rid of its upper chamber. The world didn't come to an end. You know, people maybe would have feared at the time that it might have, you know, we're going to, this is a dramatic institutional reform. The world didn't come to an end. Uh, and in fact, what happened was more reforms were introduced to guarantee equality for women. I mean, when you think about the um, kind of the, how people think about what happens if we get rid of these institutions, it sort of reminds me back, you know, this dates me a bit, a bit back to the right before the year 2000, the Y2K, like there was this kind of nightmare scenario that the world was going to come to an end because all our computer systems would crash. And then we woke up the next day and everything was just fine. And I think, you know, if we get rid of if we reform some of these institutions, I think the history of these other democracies show us rather than leading to the collapse of society, actually, all it means is that the societies become more democratic and we can get what most people want. We you know because that's what democracy at some level is about is what the majority wants. So that's, I think, the lesson of those uh, history of those countries is that we we can make a country more democratic, and this doesn't lead to disaster. It actually leads to the opposite. And Stephen, just the examples of how eliminating counter-majoritarian institutions helped give rise to modern democracy. You cite the examples of countries such as Canada, Denmark, Finland, France, Germany, New Zealand, Norway, Sweden, and the UK are both more stable and more democratic at the close of the 20th century than they were at the beginning. So... They're pretty strong examples, I would say. Right. Um, the, the I mean, there are, there 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 is a the idea of, uh, you know, too much majority rule, majority rule without minority protections being a threat. That's a real thing. That's not a that's not an invention. Uh, one can certainly go too far in empowering majorities at the expense of minorities. I think we're seeing that. Uh, in Israel today, and we've seen it to a degree in Hungary. But um, the United States is so far at the other extreme that the set of reforms that we're proposing, although to Americans might at first blush seem radical, they basically put us in the mainstream of Western European democracies. In fact, every one of the reforms that we call for, we have a set of 15 proposals in, in the final chapter of our book, Every one of them already exists in most established democracies in the world. But Daniel, one of the more glaring examples of the tyranny of the minority is Senator Tommy Tuberville, right? The one guy <laughs> that's holding up all of the, I know it's the Senate rule, the hold, uh, but nevertheless, you know, I want to also talk about the filibuster, which is another counter-majoritarian instrument. But Tuberville seems to be an example of this, a more flagrant example, but what can be done about that hold, let alone the filibuster, which I think is 
clearly it stymied the current presidency of, of Joe Biden, did it not? Just two Democratic senators were enough to stymie his ambitious reforms. He got a lot through. I mean, I think, you know, Biden is a, a lot better president than he is a candidate. And I think he's underestimated in many regards. But it's pretty sad what happened to him in terms of what Manchin and Cinema wrote. Yeah, so this this is also uh, you know on our list of fifteen proposals is to eliminate the filibuster. You know, for your listeners who are thinking, well, this all sounds great, but how is any of this ever going to happen? I mean, we really believe that eliminating the filibuster is the path forward. Uh, it's the, in some sense, the one of the easiest reforms to carry out on our list. There's other there's other form reforms that don't require constitutional reform, but certainly the filibuster is one where it all it's, it is as you said a kind of Senate rule that could be changed within the Senate. Uh, and if this were to happen, then all sorts of other reforms could happen. The protection of voting rights would then pass more easily, uh, which is also on our list. And so it, it's a kind of choke point on the political system. Uh, the, you know, the, the story of, of Tuberville with being a single person who's able to hold things up reminds me of a story that we tell in our book uh, in Poland in the late. And it's really about a national security issue as well. In Poland in the late 18th century, there was a rule in its parliament that any single member of parliament could block any piece of legislation. So it's just been described by scholars as a tyranny of the minority of one. And that's essentially what Tuberville is. I mean, he's a single figure who can block this. And, you know, this is this is playing with fire because what happened in Poland in the late 18th century is by refusing to raise taxes to be able to fund its military uh, with the single aristocrat who could block, reform, uh, block efforts to pass a budget. By the end of the 18th century, Poland couldn't mount a military defense and it, the entire country was swallowed by Prussia, Russia and Austria. Poland didn't have really friendly neighbors and they swallowed the entire territory and Poland disappeared from the map. So these kinds of institutions that thwart majorities are not only undemocratic, they can paralyze a political system. And that's the danger, I think, of the filibuster is that it makes it impossible for us not only to deal with national security issues, but other issues that people feel really passionately about. Gun control dies at the hands of filibusters, uh, minimum wage laws, all sorts of things that people really care about and that would make our system work better are blocked by this institution that wasn't even part of the founding documents. I mean, this is an institution and a practice that developed in the early 19th century. It really didn't take off until uh, the, the current era. So, you know, this is this institution that has very little legitimacy and I think uh, has to go. So, Stephen, you know, the retiring Senator uh, Mitt Romney, who fairly recently was the standard bearer of the Republicans, he ran for the presidency, after all, as a Republican in 2012. He's quitting because he feels that his own party no longer respects and believes in the Constitution. So is there a way to restore, you know, we, we venerate the Constitution and kids, everybody in government, politicians and members of the military, etc., pledge an oath to the Constitution. But the fact of the matter is, in terms of, for example, voting in this country, one party, the Democrats, have, probably have a natural majority but don't seem well inspire their people to come out whereas the other party managed to get everybody out. But the Republicans now seem to be bent on finding ways to prevent the Democrats from voting. So how do you somehow name and shame that anti-constitutional movement in this country? Is it possible to approach it in terms of shaming people into recognizing one party seems to prefer to cheat rather than compete? That's not very kosher. 
It's not very kosher. I think it's it's probably more accurate, uh, as Jamel Bowie wrote a few days ago in the New York Times, to say that uh, to to re to rephrase Romney's quote to say that that many of his fellow Republicans don't believe in democracy uh, more than not believing in the Constitution, uh, and that's what you're getting at. Um, we we in our book we have a very simple test to determine whether a political party is is loyal to democracy, committed. To democracy, and that is, do you accept the results of elections, win or lose? Do you uh, unambiguously eschew political violence, and do you break all ties with anti-democratic extremists? And uh, on really on on all three, uh, the the key leaders, certainly Trump and and his his allies, violate all three, and especially on that third front. Um, being willing to to tolerate, to flirt with, to condone, to protect anti-democratic extremists, that's where a, a very, very large number of Republican leaders fail the test. And so we're confronted, uh, as we as we said at the beginning of this broadcast, with a, a challenge of one of our two major parties not being committed to democratic rules of the game. I don't know if we can shame them into better behavior. I, frankly, I'm pretty skeptical of that. I think we've been trying to do that um, really ever since the rise of Trump. Um, there, I, I think there's no easy uh, there's no easy solution. Were there an easy solution, we probably would have found it by now. Um, but it's going to take, a, I think, a very broad coalition of small D pro-democratic forces, uh, business leaders, religious leaders, politicians, civic leaders, from really across the, the the ideological spectrum, to uh, to try to isolate and politically defeat uh, the the sort of MAGA faction of the Republican Party, and that's it's not going to be easy. But I think it's in the short term um, absolutely essential. So, a last minute comment from both of you on why our listeners need to get hold of your book. Well, I think we need to understand why we're in the situation that we're in. And I think many Americans feel like we're living through an existential crisis um, in our democracy. And, you know, that it's not about a single individual. We need to understand the deeper roots of it. And that's what we try to offer in our book as a deeper understanding. And it's only once we have a deeper appreciation for the things that are going wrong in our political system that we can begin to correct it. And so we also offer a series of proposals for how to get out. And so at some level, our book, I think, is a hopeful book, because I think that there is the possibility, and it's, it's both essential and possible, to to take the reins of our own democracy and make it more democratic. And Stephen, the yeah. last word. I think the other source of hope in the book is um, that we, we really are on the brink of, a, of something that's very, very difficult and very unusual, which is a truly multiracial democracy. It is only in the 21st century, only in the 21st century, that a majority of Americans consistently adhere to what I would describe as the two key ideological pillars of multiracial democracy. That is toleration for ethnic diversity and support for racial equality. It is, you go back to the 1980s and 1990s, you could not find consistent polls of, of, of majorities of Americans endorsing those two things. Now we have that majority, and those majorities are particularly strong in the younger generations of, of Americans. And that gives me hope, and it tells me that we need to find ways, uh, as Daniel was saying, of giving political voice, of empowering those younger generations. 
Well, gentlemen, I thank both of you, Stephen Levisky and Daniel Tablet, for joining us here today. Thanks for having us, Ian. Thanks, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Stephen Levisky and Daniel Zeiblatt, professors of government at Harvard University and the authors of the New York Times bestseller, How Democracies Die, which won the Goldsmith Book Prize and was named one of the best books of the year by the Washington Post, Time and Foreign Affairs. Stephen Levisky's research focuses on Latin America and the developing world. And he's the author of Competitive Authoritarianism. And Daniel Zeiblatt studies Europe from the 19th century to the present and is the author of Conservative Parties and the Birth of Democracy. Their latest book just out is Tyranny of the Minority, Why American Democracy Reached the Breaking Point. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back with a broadcast of background briefing from October the 29th, 2023, after the 565th math shooting this year, a look at red and yellow flag laws. From the war against disorder, from the sirens night and day, from the fires of the homeless, from the ashes of the gay, democracy is coming to the USA. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Jonathan Metzl, who's a professor of sociology and psychiatry at Vanderbilt University and director of its Center for Medicine, Health and Society, a prominent expert on gun violence and mental illness. He's the author of several books, including Dying of Whiteness, How the Politics of Racial Resentment is Killing America's Heartland, and his forthcoming book is What We've Become, Living and Dying in a Country of Arms. Welcome to Background Briefing, Jonathan Metzl. Hi, Ian. So, Jonathan, just hours before a army reservist with a history of mental illness uh, went on a shooting rampage that killed 18 people and wounded 13 in Maine, the United States Senate voted 53 to 45 to adopt an amendment making it easier for veterans with mental disabilities to get guns. And this was put forth by Senator John Kennedy, Republican of Louisiana. And another Louisiana politician, Mike Johnson, of course, was voted in as the new speaker. And he was on Fox News saying, talking about the mass shooting in Maine, saying that the problem is the human heart. It's not guns. It's not the weapons. And then he went on to say that since a person could use a car to mow down people, it makes no sense to further regulate guns. So that is the political situation we have here in the United States. In spite of the fact that there have been 565 mass shootings this year alone, which is roughly two a day, and there's certainly not 565 cars running people down. So is there any hope for a political solution to this insanity? Well, you know, you, you mentioned I have this new book coming out, what, what We've Become. And really, the argument of the book is exactly what you're just saying, which is that we have these horrible mass shootings. And then we enact policies afterwards. In other words, if a healthy nation, in my opinion, would say, look, pretty much the same damn thing happens every single time. Like how many of this exact, I mean, the stories are the, are different. The Obviously the victims, the communities um, are, are different, but um, somebody, a, a troubled person who 
came to, he, the family was concerned, but he was from a Second Amendment family and somebody who had had a history of violence before, and there were multiple red flags, uh, but nothing stops him. It's 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 the same story we heard at the Covenant School shooting uh, in Nashville, at the Waffle House mass shooting, which is the the, the shooting I wrote my book about, and it feels like hundreds of other shootings, which is these are shooters who um, even despite all of these red flags bought their guns legally, which was also the, apparently the case in, in Maine as well. And so you would think we would learn from these. I mean, I would just think in a, in a pluralistic democracy, a healthy functioning democracy, we could say we have this second amendment, but let's learn from these cases and, and do, and you know, let's, let's at least learn from the repetitive nature of these cases. And instead what we see is exactly what you're just describing, which is that we, 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 we face the abyss at these moments of our people dying, our communities being ruptured. And then we enact policies that, as I argue in my new book, practically assure that this is going to happen again. And so in a way, every one of these shootings, it's just flashing in neon, you know, here are the 15, 20 things we could do as a country to support our second amendment if people feel that they need to have a gun, but that, you know, there are just such clear cut ways to disrupt, um, to disrupt this. And, and we don't do it. We, in fact, in, as I show in my new book, we do the opposite. And so what I ask in my new book is what does that say about us? And I, I mean, us, everybody, right? Because we're all stuck in this, right? I know a lot of people, including myself and you and many people don't support what's happening, but this is the country we're living in where we have a mass shooting and the policies that surround the mass shooting. Um, I mean, there's the Supreme Court next week is going to hear a case about whether people convicted of um, domestic assault have a right to have a, a weapon or, or whether that should be regulated. And so it just it just becomes ridiculous because we have these shootings and we're forced to live this world where instead of learning how to keep people safe, we pass policies that are going to make sure this happens again. But the problem is not the human heart, Jonathan. The problem is we have minority rule in this country. If you were able to have majority rule in the House and Senate and the, and the White House, uh, with, with the White House going along with it, this problem would be solved along with so many other problems. Well, you know, I, I think I'm curious to see, you know, obviously many people are working on this. Many, many, many people are working on this. My new book argues, that, and I, I think it'll be probably controversial, that we're that were beyond the kinds of regulation that we're proposing now. And so I wish I could fix it if I was in the White House. But I can also say that even if we passed background checks and red flag laws and assault weapons bans tomorrow for the whole country, in so many ways, we would still have the same problem. First of all, because we already have about 440 million guns in circulation, um, well more than one gun per person already in circulation. Um, and the things we're talking about, you know, background checks and assault weapons bans, those are only for gun purchases. So there are already so many guns that we're already living in a kind of militarized society. And and that's part of it. But the other part is the problem isn't just about gun policy. I mean, that's what I'm trying to argue in, in this new book. The problem is about 
polarization about about people who feel like any regulation whatsoever is an assault on their freedom and how do we how do we navigate that when they are the ones who are mostly the gun owners and so um, I'm, I'm kind of arguing rhetorically and i know this is not rhetorical this is real life what's happening now but i'm arguing to, to maybe reboot this conversation a little bit because i just think we're we're stuck in so many ways so many issues including this one and so you know, I, I'll just say, first of all, what happened in Maine is horrible, and it's just the repetitive nature of these kind of stories that have, you know, I, I don't want to say that I sound hopeless, but I just, I'm responding to what you said a minute ago about fixing the problem, and what would it mean to fix the problem? It wouldn't just mean having background checks and red flag laws. It would mean really thinking about what kind of society we live in and what kind of society we want. But Jonathan, there was an example in Australia where uh, there was a mass shooting in Tasmania and a conservative government almost the next day banned assault weapons and mm -hmm. most handguns and in fact most weapons and they had a volunteer hand-in program where thousands and thousands of firearms were handed in and there's been a massive drop in gun violence since then. Well, absolutely. I, I use the example of Australia quite often, but the, but the lesson of Australia, I mean, again, we have we as I said before, we have 440 million guns floating around here. Um, that would be quite a large gun buyback program. It's not going to happen here, in other words. But I would say that the, for me, the lesson of Australia, as you know, it wasn't easy in Australia. Australia had a history of gun ownership, of frontiersmanship, of um, self-reliance, of people feeling like they were so far away from the nearest police, uh, you know, safety officer that they needed their gun, all these things. And so it wasn't automatically easy in Australia the way it wasn't automatically easy in New Zealand. And the issue wasn't, it wasn't just about any one policy. What ha what worked in Australia wouldn't work here. But it was that people on all sides decided to come together at the table and say, look, man, enough is enough, which is, you're right, after this mass shooting a series of shootings in Australia in the 80s and 90s, people people said, look, we're willing to work across political divides. And so it wasn't just about any one policy. It was about having a functioning political system where people were willing to negotiate and compromise. And unfortunately, that's not what we have here, right? We, don't, we have one side that's not willing to compromise. And so I, 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 it's not like I don't think policies would work. Of course, I think policies would work. I just think that there's a bigger problem of our political system right now, which is is compromise possible? And if it's not, where do we go from there? Well, in terms of just f focusing on the main shooter who was obviously committed suicide, he was found, I think, with three handguns, including the one that he used to kill himself with. The weapon that he used to kill 18 people and wound 13, that was found, that was, a, that was a, an AR-15 style assault rifle. That was found in his car, but the other weapons were found with him. The one that he killed the people with, he bought that just before last summer when he underwent a mental health evaluation because he was acting erratically at an army training facility in New York where, ironically, he was a weapons instructor. And so, you know, he was basically put in to a mental health facility for two weeks because he was hearing voices and he threatened to shoot up the military base, and then the other guns that he had that were found with him, the handguns, he bought them recently. 
yeah. after all of this history. So what's the, you know, when you say you know, yellow flag and red flag laws don't work, well, that's obvious, but why don't they work? Well, I, and there's another part of the story, by the way, um, which is his ammunition, right? So he wasn't, he doesn't just have these um, semi-automatic weapons. He had the kind of, he had basically military-style penetrating bullets. Um, and, and this is this is somebody who was trained in firearms, who was in the Army Reserve, who tragically knew how to use them. I mean, I just, I've, I've been so haunted by the thought of these poor people, I mean, just out for a night of bowling, a, a deaf club who, that was playing cornhole, like the most innocent, just living your life people. And here comes somebody trained and also carrying this, not just this kind of guns, but this kind of ammunition. It's just, it's almost too much to bear. It really is. And, um, you know, and, and yet I think it's important to push ahead. And I, I hope, I hope what you can hear in my voice is not my saying nothing's ever going to work. I don't mean to fall into nihilism at this point, but I would just say that it's just, you know, the, for me, like the answer is not just about any one particular policy about guns, because you mentioned, for example, yellow flag laws, which is what they have on the books in, in Maine, which is better than what they had before 2020 when they didn't have yellow flag laws. But, but a yellow flag law means that the family is concerned. That's step number one. They contact the police or, you know, somebody, some authority. That's step number two. They police come and do a welfare check, some kind of check. That's step number three. Then in a yellow flag law, they then send the person to a medical doctor or psychiatrist who does some kind of another evaluation, which is step number four. And then it goes before a judge. That's step number five. Um, and then there's a temporary, potentially temporary restriction. Now, again, this is better than nothing. And apparently yellow flag laws are being used by this system. But you can just hear from the, the many steps involved here that the potential to get around this for somebody who's hell bent on murder is pretty, it's, it's just there's a lot of steps to do a temporary um, restraining order for somebody. And the fact that every state doesn't have its own policies means you, you can just go to another state and get a weapon and, and come back. Um, or there are loopholes for gun shows, for online purchases. And, and, and so I'm not trying to disparage. I mean, it took a Herculean, incredible effort for people to get these yellow flag laws on the books. But, but, but I think until we have like nationally coherent state-to-state -state policies, there are just so many holes in these policies that people who are intent on murder can get around them too easily. And what's the difference then, Jonathan, between a yellow flag law and a red flag law? Well, the yellow flag law, you just bring in the assessment of a doctor also. So the person's assessed by the police, then a doctor, and then a judge. And, you know, again, I, I, I you hear me sighing just because I'm so, we're all so tired. And you know, I think part of the issue is about the right policy, but but I think the other issue, I just want to commend, for example, what David Hogg and his group are doing right now, you know, younger generations of activists who are saying this isn't just about health policy, this is actually about winning elections. And so David's group and some other groups are actually trying to say that it's 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 about, I mean, so much of power about gun policy, about resources, about safety come from 
elected officials who then appoint judges. Judges are very important. The judiciary, as we're about to see next week again with the Supreme Court. And so policies are certainly important, but I just think that uh, that interventions like what, what David's group is doing now and others, and we have a group similarly in Nashville that are saying none of this is going to change if we also don't figure out how to win elections in places where there are very loose gun laws right now. But the right wing in this country and the NRA and their supporters and in the Congress, there's this fetish that associates guns with liberty. And I don't understand what that association is. Why does having a gun set you free? Why is it an instrument of freedom instead of an instrument of death? Well, it's important to note that what you just said, it seems like, I mean, and in many ways it's right. What you just said describes many gun owners right now. It describes a libertarian philosophy of gun ownership. It describes certainly the GOP, um, the government cannot involve in regulating these things. But it's just, you know, we forget sometimes how new that is. It hasn't always been that way. Um, in the 1980s, 80% of people own guns did so for hunting. Uh, they did so because they'd been passed down in their families. The idea that you would carry a gun around for protection was, even in the 1980s, a very foreign notion um, because that's why we have police and that's why we have the military. This idea of every person needs to be packing heat to go to Walmart was not how we felt. And then the Supreme Court um, had a series of decisions and there were a series of moves by the NRA, you know, starting with the Reagan uh, presidency and um, what was called a new interpretation of the Second Amendment that decided that the Second Amendment applied to people in addition to militias. And then this 2008 Heller decision, which opened the floodgates for individuals to carry weapons, and then the Bruin decision a couple of years ago. So it's not inevitable, I guess my point, it's not inevitable that we think this way. The reason people feel this way very largely is because of electoral politics and because of judicial decisions that have come down from the Supreme Court. And I just think we're this isn't going to change until the, those things start changing in a way. I mean, I just I just think sometimes, like, when's the last time a gun... Well, I guess we just had one, right? But it, we, we really need a gun safety majority on the Supreme Court to reverse some of this crazy stuff. Yeah, but the preamble to the Second Amendment says that security being necessary for a free state, the state shall have a well-regulated militia, and then the citizen's right to bear arms shall not be infringed. But the idea that we don't have security and we aren't free... We're not free to go to the movies. We're not free to go to the mall. We're not free to go to churches. Kids aren't free to go to school without being massacred. So again, this fetish about freedom and guns, and if you take away the guns from a mentally ill person, it's not the end of the world. It's not taking their life, for God's sake, you know. But same mentally ill person in Maine was able to take the life of 18 people. I mean, I... I hate this so much, and I obviously I study this, so I see it a lot, and and it, where I live, it happens a lot, and and so I want this to change as much as anyone. Um, I hate that we live like this. It's it's unconscionable that we live like this, but I can also tell you as a psychiatrist, and this is a lot of my work, as you know, um, you could probably have 
10,000 people with mental illness who met the exact same profile as this shooter. And you have no idea which one or 0.4 or whatever are going to go on to shoot somebody. So there's nothing predictive about mental illness. Most people with mental illness are victims of violence, not perpetrators of violence. There are other factors that are more predictive of violence than mental illness, past history of violence, substance abuse, living in a state with loose gun laws, um, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And so um, certainly mental illness is, is a factor in many of these mass shootings, but I just think... Um, you know, it's, we're never going to be in a place but that, 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 you know, psychiatrists are able to predict which of the thousands of people they see are, are, are the ones that are going to go on to commit violent acts. And, and most shootings on an aggregate level are people without mental illness. And so I'm not trying to deny that this clearly in Maine, this person was very not well. There's no doubt about it. Um, but, but I think if you regulated guns from every person with mental illness in this country, that would be a lot of regulation. And and still, we again, we have about 48,000 gun deaths a year. The great majority don't have anything to do with mental illness. They're about partner violence and suicide and accidental shooting and, and things like that. And so I'm not trying to deny that. I mean, I certainly mm-hmm. think it's an important point. But I would just say you know, the, the stories we tell, the stories you just told are very often more powerful in retrospect than they are uh, predictively. Sure. But just in closing, we had, so far we've had 565 mass shootings this year, which is roughly two a day. In 2022, last year, we had 645 mass shootings. And in 2021, we had 690 mass shootings. I well, and, and, it, well let ahead. me just say that I remember in 2018, I would, did a lot of media because we were nearing one mass shooting a day. It was 0.95 in 2018. And everybody was like, how can we live like this? This is un, unbearable. That was 2018, and now we're, we've doubled that. And so mm-hmm. it, it's, it's not like we have more mentally ill people. We have worse gun laws. And so sure. it's really, really need to do the opposite of what we're doing. Well, Jonathan Metzl, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thanks so much, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Jonathan Metzl, who's a professor of sociology and psychiatry at Vanderbilt University and director of its Center for Medicine, Health and Society, a prominent expert on gun violence and mental illness. He's the author of several books, including Dying of Whiteness, How the Politics of Racial Resentment is Killing America's Heartland. And his forthcoming book is What We've Become, Living and Dying in a Country of Arms. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back with the profile of the new House Speaker from an expert on the religious right who first noticed the ascending Christian fundamentalist politician Mike Johnson in 2015. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green to help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all. Please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media, 
And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And I'll be back again on Sunday with another background briefing. Bye for now. Teacher and the other became